Hello and welcome to Professor Jamerson's podcast. This is season two, episode two for sociological theory, covering readings in indigenous theory for this week. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Theory Podcast. Uh, before we get into indigenous theory for today, I'm going to talk about this new terrain, this new theoretical terrain that we're shifting to. I want to give an update on the spread of the COVID pandemic last week for this podcast. I think the numbers I gave were 189,000 total cases in the United States with 4,000 deaths. Today, a week later, we are more than double that, 401 thousand total cases and we have tripled uh, the number of deaths almost up to 13,000 12,902 thank you for all the healthcare workers who are directly stopping the spread of this virus and caring for people that have it have it thank you for all the essential workers thank you for staying home and now I'd like to have a moment of silence for everyone that we have lost so far Thank you. Thank you. And so, as I said, we are moving into new theoretical terrain. And, and you know, I've been talking about these old dead white guys, and we have been talking about them as, as being, uh, as forming different paradigms of sociological thought. And, and to a certain extent, that's true. And our videos have talked about this, where our textbook talks about structural functionalism as being a different paradigm than conflict theory, as being a different paradigm than Max Weber and his theories of the iron cage, as being different than symbolic interactionism, as being different than phenomenology. But if we expand our focus here, if we look outside the box of Western thought, we realize that all of the different theoretical paradigms that we have covered so far all fit within uh, what we would call a Western epistemology or a Western system of knowledge production. And so with indigenous theory, we're really making a very sharp course correction, as I've alluded to in an earlier announcement, and really going to be thinking outside the box. Indigenous theory, as we know it today, as an academic discourse, is relatively new. But as Leonie Pihama said in a lecture I attended in New Zealand, She's she's a Maori, uh, an indigenous activist, uh, a, a gay rights activist. She's uh, she has a, a, a moko, a facial tattoo that Maori women and, and, and Maori men uh, wear. Um, she said, "We've always had theory. All indigenous people, we've always had theory. We just didn't call it that." And so we're going to be really playing with this notion of theory in this week's podcast. Of all the people, of all the theorists that we have read, that we will read in this class, I have met one of them, Linda Tuiwai Smith, who who I will be discussing in a few minutes. Um, she's what I like to call casually brilliant. I went to Hamilton, New Zealand, and took a class with her oh eight eight nine years ago called Indigenous Consciousness, Knowledge, Ethics, and Values, and I was the only white male in the class, and they actually spoke English in part to accommodate my linguistic limitations. They normally would have held that class um, in Te Reo Maori, which is the language of indigenous New Zealanders or, or the language of the indigenous Maori, the Tangata Fenwa, uh, people of the land. I will include a video of Linda so you can like kind of see her and what she looks like and how she talks. 
um, just to give you a sense of, of who you're reading. As I said, this is the only like person in the, in the, that we've read in the class that I've actually met and interacted with. Uh, but before we start talking more about Linda's work, I do want to um, start with this, this article, Peoplehood, a Model for the Extension of Sovereignty in American Indian Studies by Tom Holm, uh, J. Diane Pearson, and Ben Chavis. And when we think about what it means to be indigenous or what it means to be part of an indigenous group, um, this is really going to help us sort of understand what that means. Both Linda and Holm et al. here really start from this notion of theory and what theory is and how American Indian studies or indigenous or native studies can be incorporated into what we think of as a theoretical thought in an academic sense. And so Tom Holmes starts with this notion of paradigm. And once again, I'm bringing up this word. Um, paradigm, uh, according to Thomas Kuhn, is an example that serves as a model or pattern to explain the idea that the sciences possess core assumptions. And so remember at the very beginning of class, I talked about how each of these theories that we're going to cover have these core assumptions. And to understand how theories work, we have to uncover what these core assumptions are. And so it starts with Darwin's theory, for example. What's the core assumption that animals progress based on changes in their environment? They evolve to meet certain challenges and those that don't evolve, of course, end up dying off. As the authors say, significantly, the social and behavioral sciences have embraced the Darwinian paradigm and developed theories that underpin the notion that humans have naturally progressed through time. It is assumed that economics, governments, cultures, philosophies, technologies, and social relationships have evolved from the simple to the complex in reaction to various stimuli or as a result of man's innate curiosity. So where does that leave indigenous peoples who, by outsider or Western observations, have not changed, have not progressed, have remained uh, essentially the same uh, in many ways for thousands and thousands of years have not changed in, in a Darwinian sense like modern society has seen to change. Well, I really think that instead of thinking about indigenous peoples as not evolving, we should think of indigenous peoples as being very evolved, perhaps more so than those accustomed to a modern mindset. If we want to think about environmentalism, for example, indigenous peoples have figured out to live in the same place, in the same environment, which modern society has not figured out yet for thousands and thousands of years. And so this becomes a very important theoretical question uh, about the assumptions of our knowledge and the values behind the assumptions that constitute our knowledge of the world. And so we really start from this premise Right, where does American Indian studies fit for the authors here into this constellation of theories in Western thought? And this and this notion of fitting in, right, is the core of the problem that is being described here by by the by the authors. Uh, they talk about all these different theories that have lended themselves to American Indian studies, for example. Uh, I mean, look at this big list here on page nine. Class conflict theory, that's Marx. That's one that we've covered in class. Critical legal theory, we haven't covered that. Critical race theory, we haven't covered that. 
economic determinist ethno-history, mercantilist economic colonial history. I have never heard of Jean Guillemin's Micmac domestic colonialism model, or for that matter, Helen Roundtree's Virginia colonial model. And so there are all these theories, and we go on. Uh, epidemiology, demographic collapse, Cornell's agrarian economic theory, uh, structural functional economic determinism, all of these different theories that we haven't even covered in class can be applied to American Indian studies. And this becomes the problem, as I said, is there is no theory for the authors of American Indian studies. It, it only exists as a tributary, as sort of a, a side part of all of these other theories. And this is an inherent problem, not just academically speaking, but politically speaking. But socially speaking, there needs to be space to articulate this very different form of identity, this very different form of social organization, this very different form of epistemology of understanding the nature of reality. And, and we need to have space for these, these quote unquote outsider interpretations of reality and, and for indigenous peoples, right? These are very internalized senses of reality that have been uh, destroyed, that have been under attack by the forces of modernity for uh, going on 500 years now. As our authors say, this overview of theories and models applicable to American Indian studies is by no means complete. It is presented primarily to illustrate the richness of thought that has gone into this area of study. This overview indicates the exceptionally high intellectual caliber of the individuals who have focused their research on Native American topics but yet it still seems to be a tributary of these mainstream academic discourses. And so what becomes a problem? The problem is American Indian studies, because it is a tributary of all these other theories, of all these other mainstream theories, has not had the chance to develop its own set of core assumptions that will allow it to stand on its own along with agrarian theories of structural, economic, interdependent, whatever. And so that is the task then of this, 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 uh, this article here to remove the stigma, the stigma, excuse me, of being labeled as a tributary of other disciplines. And so the authors present here uh, a solution to this problem, a set of core assumptions. Uh, what they call the peoplehood matrix. And here's what they say about this. The peoplehood matrix itself is universal to all Native American tribes and nations and possibly to all indigenous groups and could equally serve as the primary theoretical underpinning of indigenous people studies. And this is a very, this is a very big assertion to make. And when we think of the peoplehood matrix, what do all indigenous societies have in common? Right. They say here language, history, religion, or what they call ceremonial cycle and land or territory. All indigenous groups have these and they form an inherent uh, conceptualization of sovereignty for indigenous groups. Now, when we think about indigenous groups, uh, one of the problems with developing a core set of theoretic, theoretical assumptions for all indigenous peoples is the incredible diversity of indigenous peoples worldwide. Just in the United States alone, there are 
write about 500 federally recognized tribes. Each of these tribal groups have their own epistemology, have their own system of knowledge production, their own language, their own history. They all live in very different places and incredible cultural diversity. So how can we come up with a framework that encompasses all of this diversity? Um, one way to do that is to think about this notion of peoplehood. When we think about this idea of peoplehood, and I want to draw your attention to this diagram here on page 13. Uh, it is very, very important to remember that all four of these aspects, language, sacred history, place or territory, and ceremonial cycle, all four of these aspects are interrelated. They are inherently connected to each other. And this represents perhaps the biggest difference between indigenous epistemologies and this notion of indigenous peoplehood and, and modern society, where these four aspects of society tend to be more separate from each other and more independent from each other. And they develop, yes, in relation to each other, but not as intricately interwoven with each other as we see within indigenous worldviews. And so on page 13, moving on to 14, uh, the authors give a summary of each of these aspects of peoplehood. And I just want to point out a few things. When we think about language, language defines place and vice versa. Place names bespeak a relationship with the environment or describe an area within the context of a group's sacred history and culture. So I read this really great book about how the Apache name their places and, and place names act as a map for where to find water, for example, where where someone passed away or where a family got stuck in a storm, for example. Uh, places to visit if you need something, places to avoid. Um, these, these types of directions for living in an environment are all encoded into the ways places are named and the stories behind places and, and how they're named. And so language becomes a very important part of that. Uh, a group's sacred history, for example, is equally an explanation of its own distinct culture, customs, and political economy. Uh, a group's sacred history tells the story of the people, in a sense, tells the people who they are. Law is derived from within the peoplehood matrix as a result of historical precedent, for example. We've already talked about the importance of territory. Uh, there, there is a very uh, a sacred relationship between an indigenous group and the land that they live on. It's 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 not a relationship of of surviving on the land. It's a relationship of re reciprocity. We take care of the land as the land takes care of us, and so territory is, is an extremely important part of indigenous peoplehood and and the sacredness of territory once again is encoded in the language is found in the history and is also um and is also explained the importance of territory is explained through the practice of moving to this fourth aspect a ceremonial cycle as they say in short the ceremonial cycle is linked by way of language and sacred history to a particular environment and ecology, it makes up a group's world and directly and directly affects its worldview. And and what I'm going to eventually do is draw a direct connection between ceremonial cycle and and uh, more modern academic modes of, of theorizing. Because what I see in indigenous ceremonial cycles is, is sort of a practice of 
actively theorizing the reality and explaining the reality of the world around them. And so, so what are the implications of this, this peoplehood matrix, this, this universal sort of form of identity shared by all indigenous people? Well, well, it's not, it's not just this cultural aspect. It's not just this identity aspect. The authors argue that's what's most important about it. What's most important about it is, is this model of sovereignty, this model of independence, this model of resistance from Western encroachment that it represents. And so here I'll quote here from the authors at length. Finally, Western scholars have defined the highest and most modern form of socio-political organization as the state, as in the United States or France or Germany. And this is, is, is something that I see is an assumption right in the theories of Weber, Marx, and Durkheim, for example. A state is normally thought of as incorporating large numbers of people under a single highly centralized government operating under a bureaucracy. The people under the state do not have to be linked to a common ancestor. The government wields the power to collect taxes, draft labor, raise armies, and decree laws. It uses coercive institutions, and this is all in the language of classic sociology, to protect the state or to enforce its codes of behavior to maintain order. The people under the state are considered its subjects or citizens. The organizational form, whether under the terms kingdom, city-state, or nation-state, is viewed as a civilized government because it has nearly total control over its members and seeks political efficacy over a well-defined territory. This is all information that we sort of take for granted. And yet the authors argue here, these two narrow definitions and their hierarchical alignment based on this Darwinian idea of progression, hierarchical because they are assumed to have evolved in steps from the simple band to the complex state, have led to serious scholarly misconceptions concerning pre-state and non-state or uncivilized peoples who have been subjugated for other states. So, so our focus on the primacy and on the importance and of the inevitability of the nation state precludes us from understanding the complex reality and, and really the, 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 the incredible success of indigenous peoples for thousands of years up to this point. We, of course, have a hard time recognizing the importance and the incredible, the incredible complexity of indigenous worldviews because they have been systematically eliminated. They have been systematically dismissed and destroyed through processes of colonialism and imperialism. Imperialism defined here is nothing less than an economic policy under which a given state seeks to control resources. Colonization is the physical occupation of territories by an imperial state done to manage this economic policy. Colonization is, in short, the denial of one group's sovereignty on the basis that the group being colonized is unorganized, uncivilized, or lawless. The peoplehood model stands as a very powerful uh, counterpoint to these assumptions. Right? It carries with it its own set of assumptions that are built from the ground up, that are built from within, that are built from the perspective of indigenous peoples acting as a powerful conceptual resistor to this denial of another group's sovereignty on these bases of colonization. So I want to move now to discussing Linda Smith's uh, chapter from her very good book, Decolonizing Methodologies. Imperialism, History, Writing, and Theory. 
And 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 these two articles, uh, these two readings, the the peoplehood reading, and now this chapter by Linda Smith, I've used to create a theoretical model that we use for an entire semester in my American Indian Studies course. And and Linda here starts with this this very famous quote by a uh, black feminist uh, Audre Lorde, "The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house." And and what exactly does she mean by that? Uh, I think we can really think about the master's house here being this notion of a modern Western-based civilization dominated by whiteness, by patriarchy, by uh, bourgeois capitalist interests, for example. This is the master's house. And now how was this master's house built? What were the tools used to build this house? And here we have the title of the chapter, Imperialism, History, Writing, and most germane to our interest, I would think, this this idea of theory. Linda's going to make an argument here that these are the master's tools. This is what has denied the four elements of peoplehood. And what we're going to end up doing is make a direct connection between these four master's tools and the elements of peoplehood. For example, imperialism and imperialistic practices end up canceling out the territorial practices. They, they take away land, for example from indigenous peoples. Western ideas of what history is come to supplant, come to take over indigenous notions of what history is. Writing, of course, supplants the the oral traditions of indigenous languages. And and theory, as an explanation for reality, comes to supplant, comes to uh, uh, replace Theories are, are ex- explanations of reality grounded in ceremonial cycles, which are themselves are all about reestablishing connections to the natural environment in which one lives. And so what we see here is these master's tools target very specifically, each of these master's tools target very specifically a single aspect of this peoplehood matrix, which is why I like to combine these readings to create a theoretical model for understanding not just indigenous identity, but also uh, for understanding what indigenous epistemologies can bring to our understanding of social theory and to our understanding of this social world that we live in more generally. So Linda starts by talking about, she's like, well, I mean, our version of modernity as indigenous peoples is very different than, than Europe's version of modernity. And we could talk about a lot of things, a lot of damaging things. We could talk about the spread of infectious diseases and colonialism's role in that. But but I want to talk about these four things. I want to talk about imperialism, history, writing, and theory. She says that these terms may seem to make up a strange selection. There could be more obvious concepts, like sovereignty, for example, that we could talk about. But I've selected these words because from an indigenous perspective, they are problematic. They are words which tend to evoke a whole array of feelings, attitudes, and values. They are words of emotion, which draw attention to the thousands of ways in which indigenous languages, knowledges, and cultures have been silenced, misrepresented, ridiculed, or condemned in academic and popular discourse. They are also words which are used in particular sorts of ways or avoided altogether. And so if we want to start this notion of decolonization, right, how do we, how do we free ourselves from this, 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 this box of, of Western thought? And I'm not saying that we can't get great things out of Western thought. We spent 
half a semester getting good things out of it, I think. But if we want to truly get, get out of it, we need to question these four things because they are at the root of many of the sort of mental barriers that prevent us from expanding our, our worldviews in these ways. And so I want to briefly go over the four master's tools as outlined in this chapter. The first one is imperialism. And, and Linda talks about imperialism from, I think, four perspectives here, starting outlined on page 22. One, imperialism as a form of economic expansion. Two, imperialism as a subjugation of others. Three, imperialism as an idea or spirit with many forms of realization. And four, imperialism as a discursive field of knowledge. And, and this first form of imperialism, um, this notion of economic expansion, this is really going to be drawing from Marxist theory. And she mentions here J.A. Hobson and Lenin from the early 20th century. Uh, colonialism, uh, European capitalism needed these new markets that always needed to expand it needed raw materials to create cheaper products for workers so that they could afford them. Imperialism and colonialism helped sort of release this economic pressure through always finding these new economic frontiers for investment. And this is really what justified colonial domination and subjugation, which is the second form of imperialism. Uh, this is this is really where the idea of race plays a role. How do you justify this? Well, these people are savage. These people are primitive. We need to bring them closer to civilization. They need to listen to us. They need to do what we say. Um, this all becomes justified in many ways through the idea of race. Uh, a third form of imperialism, imperialism is an idea or spirit. And this is really going to be rooted in this notion of the enlightenment and the spread of the enlightenment and and uh, motivations to spread enlightenment thinking in this wider enlightenment context for example imperialism becomes an integral part of the development of the modern state which was just critiqued in the article um, by Holm Pearson and Chavis of science of ideas and of the modern human person the imperial imagination enabled European nations to imagine the possibility that new worlds new wealth and new possessions existed that could be discovered and controlled. This imagination was realized through the promotion of science, economic expansion, and political practice. And, and so these are really these, these dominating sort of conceptions of imperialism, these, these sort of negative forms, uh, these negative conceptions of imperialism. And then finally, we have this critical, right, a fourth use of the term uh, coming from below, right, that the post-colonial understanding um, this, this realizes imperialism is not just being external to ourselves, but something that, that indigenous peoples have been internalized. It's not just that their territories have been colonized. It's not just that their histories have been colonized. Their very, the very minds have been colonized. As she says here, the reach of imperialism into our heads challenges those who belong to colonized communities to understand how this occurred, partly because we perceive a need to decolonize our minds, to recover ourselves, to claim a space in which to develop a sense of authentic humanity, which has been denied, which has been dismissed, which has been attempted to be proven wrong by Western modern science and theory every step of the way since 
Columbus's 1492 voyages. Indigenous histories are generally uh, conceptualized as a cyclical uh, forces, so history sort of repeat it, sort of repeats itself, and, and indigenous notions of history get a little bit of a sense of how important they are in the article by by Holm, Chavis, and Pearson. Uh, here, Linda Smith, starting on page thirty-one, offers um, a very potent critique of Western history with these nine points uh, that conceptual that that sort of orient uh, modern conceptions of history and how they are different than indigenous conceptions of history and how they conflict with indigenous conceptions of history. And I just want to point out here, Linda says here on page 35, we believe that history is also about justice, that understanding history will enlighten our decisions about the future. Wrong. History is also about power. In fact, history is mostly about power. It is the story of the powerful and how they became powerful and then how they used their power to keep them in positions in which they can continue to dominate others. It is because of this relationship with power that we have been excluded, marginalized, and othered. And so we move here from imperialism to history. I also want to talk about writing. Um, she references Maori writer Patricia Grace, who wrote an essay called Books Are Dangerous to Indigenous Readers. Because A, do they, they do not reinforce our values, actions, customs, or culture. They tell us only about others. When they tell us only about others, they are saying that we do not exist. Three, they may be writing about us, but are writing things which are untrue. Four, they are writing about us, but saying negative and insensitive things, which tell us that we are not good. Writing is used as a basis of this notion of a civilized people. So if you do have a written language, you are civilized. If you do not, then you are not. And indigenous peoples in North America, for example, were um, forcibly beaten or beaten in schools for using their native language and then forced to read and write in English. And so it really has been become a powerful tool for the dehumanization of indigenous peoples. And finally, I want to move to theory. Right, this is a theory class, and I'm running out of time. I've already gone over my 30-minute limit. Research is linked in all disciplines to theory. Research adds to, is generated from, creates or broadens our theoretical understandings. Indigenous peoples have, in many ways, been oppressed by theory. So where does that leave us in terms of the theories that we covered earlier in this class? Because these are the theories that Linda Smith is talking about. Let's make no mistake about that. And, and she's talking about Marxism as well as structural functionalism, for example. She's talking about symbolic interactionism and phenomenology. All of these within their core assumptions assume the inevitability, the normality of modern society, therefore the otherness of non-modern or indigenous peoples. And so this is where theory becomes for Linda Smith, a master's tool to say nothing of the influence of something like Darwinian theory in creating this human hierarchy associated with race and civilization and progress. So what Linda is arguing here is we can't use these tools to liberate indigenous peoples, to decolonize their minds, to fight for sovereignty, to fight against something like the Keystone XL pipeline, which is being um, ushered in under the radar because everyone is focused on COVID right now. We need new tools. 
right? We need we need new theoretical tools, and this is really going back to this notion of peoplehood. The first edition of this book, Decolonizing Methodologies, came out in 1999, and the peoplehood article we're reading comes out in 2002. We don't need anyone else developing tools which will help us come to terms with who we are. As Kathy Irwin urges, we can and will do this work. Real power lies with those who design the tools. It always has. And so we need to look to new tools, such as something like the peoplehood model, to help us understand indigenous liberation, and furthermore, to help us understand how indigenous theories can add to our explanations for the world around us, for, for anyone, right? For, for indigenous or non-indigenous peoples. All right. Thank you very much. I look forward to um, producing more of these podcasts for you. I look forward to reading your work and you'll hear from me next week. Thank you.